We start with Canada's COVID-19 vaccine rollout plan. The federal government held a briefing in Ottawa yesterday on the vaccine distribution plan. It will be led by a Canadian military general. Three million Canadians expected to get shots in the first three months of 2021. According to the briefing yesterday, millions more after that. The most vulnerable will get the shots first. Seniors in long-term care frontline healthcare workers among them. Still a lot of questions, though, about how this plan is going to work. So let's talk about that with my first guest today. Very pleased to welcome her back to the show, Michelle Rempel, uh, the Conservative MP. She is the official opposition health critic in the House of Commons, vice chair of the Federal Health Committee. Very pleased to welcome her back. Hi, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, when you look at this plan, you and other critics have really been putting the heat on this government, looking for answers on how this plan is going to work. Like, it just seemed that Canada was behind other countries, finally getting some details yesterday. What is your analysis of what you heard yesterday on this plan? We still don't know who's getting the vaccine when. Uh, Provincial governments still have a lot of questions. Uh, And yesterday we heard that one of the uh, leading vaccine manufacturers actually had to cut some of their production, and we don't understand what that means for Canada's yeah, that's the, yet. That's so, the Pfizer vaccine, right? That's correct. So, yeah. I mean, like today we're seeing um, vaccines starting to be rolled out in the UK. Um, the United States are just days away from this, and we still don't have that details. We're hearing provincial governments saying things like it's going to be very limited in the first quarter of the year. Then we look at the United States where they're saying that they're going to have, you know, close to 40 million people vaccinated by the end of January, and it's concerning. So, you know, I don't think this is a partisan issue. I think every Canadian uh, wants to know when they will have this tool available to them. Right. And uh, that's why we're, you know, we raise motions in the House of Commons compelling the government to give Canadians this information before Christmas. Okay, I think a lot of people are wondering a lot of those questions as well, especially the date. They want to know when are they going to get this shot. And let me play this for you. This is Dr. Howard Naju. He's the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer, and he was asked yesterday, do we have a precise date and when Canadians can expect to get this vaccine? And here's what he said. There are a lot of moving parts, so uh, certainly we're, we're uh, optimistic uh, uh, with the, the Pfizer vaccine, also Moderna and uh, several others. Uh, they're in the approval process uh, as uh, my colleague, I'll pass it on to, to her shortly, uh, Dr. Sharma has said, uh, uh, we expect a decision soon, uh, and, and certainly we expect it to be a favorable one. But in the meantime, we're not just sitting still and sitting on our hands. We've been actively uh, having discussions at all levels uh, uh, you know, of government, obviously with Minister Anand and others, but also with ourselves at the technical level in public health. Okay, okay, no answer there about a precise date. Uh, is it reasonable to expect one right now, Michelle Rempel? Well, actually, later in that same technical briefing, the same official made the following comment. It's something to the effect of, I don't think we should be obsessing about delivery and dates. And, yeah. and that's just not reasonable. Um, countries around the world are pure countries like the United States, Australia, Germany, the UK, have ruled out details about the order of precedence for who's getting vaccines, how some of the vaccines with storage, uh, unique storage capacity or requirements like Pfizer are, are being dealt with. And we just don't have that from the federal government yet. And it is the federal government's responsibility to provide that information to the provinces. So in a country right. like Canada, where we've got uh, a division of jurisdiction, jurisdictional responsibility for health, it's particularly more important to have this information. So again, like this is why, you know, my party, we're the official opposition conservative party. We've been pushing uh, the government for these details in official motions in the house of commons, as well as in the standing committee on health. So, um, Canadians can, you know, 
what we want to do is make sure that everybody understands when they can get a vaccine because it's going to be such an important tool for us to combat the spread of COVID-19. Speaking to federal conservative health critic Michelle Rempel-Garner, um, I know Justin Trudeau loves taking questions from you in uh, in question period. Let me let me play this uh, for you. This is an exchange between you and the prime minister just the other day on this topic, and then I want to get to get some more details from you on it. So here it is. Answer the question. Exactly. Did you even bother to negotiate the right for Canada to vac- ma- manufacture these vaccines at home? Did you? Do we have the ability to do this? And when are Canadians going to get these vaccines? As I said, Canada has the best portfolio of vaccine purchase in the world, including two domestic vaccine candidates, Vito Intervac and Medicago. But the member opposite was asking what happened to domestic uh, manufacturing in Canada. The Conservative government happened to domestic manufacturing. In 2007, AstraZeneca and Bristol-Myers closed their Canadian manufacturing operations. Okay, apparently it's the Conservatives' fault that we don't have adequate vaccine production capacity in the country. How do you respond to that when the Prime Minister, he makes this point several times recently, that the Conservatives, under the Conservatives' vaccine production capacity went down in the country? It's just ridiculous. First of all, he's been Prime Minister for five years. When I was Minister of State for Western Economic Diversification, I remember us investing in facilities, uh, for example, Vito Intervac in Saskatoon. But all that aside, the reality is is that the leading vaccine candidates that we know we're going to have access to in short order, um, potentially, uh, so Pfizer and Moderna, they're based on technologies that I don't think any country really has capacity to uh, produce yet um, outside of where their manufacturing plants are so, you know, it's a bit of a red herring on the part of the Prime Minister. But if he, if we're going to spend money to build up that capacity for these new technologies, we need to have the ability to produce it. All that aside, you know, when I hear myself speak, it's, this is like a really technical conversation for somebody who's listening who just wants to know when they're getting a vaccine. Countries yeah. around the world are having these vaccines delivered to them. What we need to know is where we are on that right. order list. It's kind of like... I was explaining it to a friend the other day. It's like if you used a grocery shopping service, you know, let's say you ordered everything in in one department, that's fine, but you need to know how many orders are ahead of you before you get delivery, right? And it's the same sort of scenario here. And I know that many Canadians are desperate to get access to this tool, and that's really what we're fighting the government to give Canadians information on. Well, I thought it was a key question that you pressed him on there in that clip we played, and that is whether under the contracts that have been signed by Canada with these big pharmaceutical companies, do we retain any rights to manufacture some of these vaccines within our own borders? Has there been any clarity offered from the government on that point? Like, can we make these vaccines ourselves? Um, No, there actually hasn't been. Uh, We did. This is something that one of our parliamentary committees uh, we forced the Liberals to, to actually look at this. We hope to get this issue cleared, cleared up before Christmas. Um, but uh, we're also hearing concerns about the fact that the, there was a, a lot of effort put into one particular vaccine with a company called CanSino that didn't pan out, that may have yeah. affected um, where Canada's on the list with, uh, with the ability to produce other vaccines. We don't have the answers to that question. It's just something that we're exploring. Bottom line, I mean, my top priority and the leader of our party, our top priority is to get that information. When are Canadians getting a va- um, access right. to a vaccine? Everybody who wants one should be able to get one, especially when pure countries are uh, already doing this.
Final question for you. I see that some provinces are trying to make the case that if they have a particularly bad outbreak of COVID, maybe they should move up the line for distribution of the vaccine, notably Manitoba, which has got some real troubling numbers there, indicating yesterday, well, maybe we should get the vaccine, more vaccine before other provinces. I don't think that's going that's going to be a difficult sell, I think, in other provinces. But do you have any thoughts on that in terms of the distribution? Should it be absolutely equal among all the well, provinces? I, I mean... Again, this is so this is what we were debating in the House yesterday. We put forward a motion to say that federal government has to be clear on how it's distributing vaccines. Is it per capita based on the provinces? Is it based on other criteria? They have not made that clear. And I think that that's something that Canadians should have the ability to be, uh, you know, to understand how the government's making that decision so that we don't have, you know, regions being pitted against each other and that the people who are most vulnerable are guaranteed to be uh, getting it first. Uh, but again, like as a politician, I want public health experts and public health po- public policymakers to be giving us data and rationale on ethics, on need, so that we can review that. We don't have that information yet. And I know provincial governments um, are really scrambling because of it. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. That is Michelle Rempel-Garner. She's the Conservative MP. She is the official opposition health critic in the House of Commons talking about the plan for a vaccine rollout across Canada. Let's talk about the employment picture in British Columbia now. New numbers just out this morning from Statistics Canada. The economy across the country uh, continuing to rebound. The numbers in British Columbia looking pretty good here. The unemployment rate is down. More people are heading back to work. We haven't caught up with all the losses from earlier in the year uh, when the pandemic first hit uh, the country and the and the rest of the world, but doing a pretty good job in clawing back a lot of these job numbers. Let's talk to Ravi Kalon now. He's the BC Minister for Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation. Very pleased to welcome him. Ravi, thank you for coming on. Hey, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. Okay. What jumps out at you in these job numbers here? Well, you know, from the beginning, our focus was, uh, you know, we knew for to build the foundation for a strong recovery, you know, we'd have to have a strong public health focus, and and that's meaning keep, keeping people safe. And so the survey for us, uh, it shows positive trends. I mean, we're starting to see we're uh, 98.5% of our pre-pandemic levels, which is uh, super positive. Uh, and uh, a big shift towards full-time jobs, which is also, I think, uh, a positive sign. Uh, you know, early on, we saw a lot of employers hiring part-time uh, because there was a lot of uncertainty. But now we're seeing a big shift towards hiring full-time. So, so uh, overall, it's a positive trend line, and uh, we obviously would hope for that to continue. Okay, we have new uh, encouragement from Dr. Bonnie Henry to continue doing more social distancing and, and as and new some new restrictions coming out as well as the COVID builds in this COVID-19 builds through a second wave. Does that are, are you concerned that that starts to erode the kind of the the pace of the comeback here? Yeah, I, a little bit of concern there for me, Mike. Uh, you know, uh, this survey that was taken was November 8th to 14th. And uh, right. as you'll remember, the restrictions that we brought in, in particularly in Metro Vancouver, uh, started on November 7th. So it captures the first week of that. And then we had additional measures come in uh, on the 23rd of November. And so, you know, although we're seeing the positive signs uh, in the trend line has been good, you know, a little concerned that we could start seeing some losses uh, in, in the coming months, uh, you know, uh, with the 
with the new restrictions that come in place. Right, right. Okay, that said, though, most analysts today saying that these numbers are better than anticipated as, as the economy continues to show some resiliency here and bouncing back. When you take a look at what's going on in British Columbia, which particular sectors of the economy um, are jumping out at you? You know, uh, we're starting to see uh, big gains in construction, uh, which is a, a very positive sign. We're starting to see uh, some bounce back in the accommodation and food services as well. So that means people are getting out there and, uh, and, and you know, buying from their local restaurants. So both positive signs. You know, it's funny because uh, people say, well, how come we're losing jobs in construction? Because especially in Metro Vancouver, when you drive around, all you see is, giant cranes and buildings going up everywhere uh but you know i think you know, we're starting to see a little bit of people starting to do projects at home by themselves because they're they're home more often and so uh really on the residential side we had seen a little bit of slip but we're starting to see those numbers come back which is which is positive Speaking to Ravi Kalan, he's British Columbia's Minister for Jobs and Economic Recovery. When you take a look at some of these numbers, um, it's, it's really interesting numbers because it breaks it down by different demographic groups, uh, uh, particularly among men and women. It just seems like women in particular have taken sort of a, a, a bigger hit here in through economically through the, th- through the pandemic. And women in particular, jobs coming back, but w- it seems like employment games are dominated by men over the age of 25 compared to compared to women getting back into the workforce does that concern you well you know we saw a huge gap between men and women uh you know in march and april and that was super super concerning for everyone uh but we're starting to see that gap start to close now i know there's a lot more to that story uh and in particular when schools were closed we know uh, women often take uh more of the responsibilities of staying home with kids and we certainly saw that uh, but, you know, we've seen women returning to the workforce and, uh, and, and the employment numbers, the gap between men and women uh, appears to be uh, closing. Okay, we lost a lot of jobs at the start of the pandemic. It looks like we've gotten a lot of them back. Uh, how, what's sort of the gap there? Uh, we haven't got every job. Every single job has not come back, but a large percentage of them have, right? Yeah, we're back around 98.5% of pre-pandemic oh. uh, job levels. So, you know, that's uh, pretty significant. Uh, but, you know, we know as we get closer to that 100% mark, the number is going to slow and the, and the growth is going to slow. And, uh, you know, I, I wish we could flip a switch uh, once this vaccine gets rolled out and the economy would be full-fledged running again. But, you know, we know it's going to take some time. Okay. Any other, any other segments of the economy that are looking particularly uh, possible for, to, for generating jobs? Like what about high tech, the high tech sector? Uh, well, the tech sector has been doing well uh, throughout, and uh, yeah. certainly I think we're going to be watching film and uh, television. You know, we're seeing a lot more uh, productions coming online and, and, uh, and, and people coming uh, to, to work. I think that's a really positive sign there. Uh, so really that's going to be our focus. We're going to keep an eye on construction. We're going to keep an eye on film and television. Uh, you know, we, we may see a small decrease in the accommodation and food services. Uh, we'll have to just see what happens over the next month. Okay, Tega, you're a new cabinet minister. Congratulations on, on your appointment to cabinet. And it's interesting to look at your portfolio, jobs and economic recovery. What is your focus here going forward? Well, you know, what, one of the things we've got is we've got uh, the BC Restart Plan, which I think is one of the most comprehensive uh, restart plans in, in Canada. And so uh, we've got uh, $1.5 billion dollars. 
that we had uh, gotten approved from the legislature. And a lot of that money is starting to roll out now. Uh, for example, Mike, we've got $300 million available for small and medium-sized businesses. And I'm not talking loans. I'm talking direct uh, influx of dollars into their businesses. And so if you've got um, listeners who are listening right now who have seen declines in their uh, numbers and, and need support, they can go to smallbusinessbc.ca uh, right now and see all the, the resources available from both the province as well as the federal government. Okay, why do you have to do that if we've got 98% of the jobs have been recovered? Why do you have to keep spending on stimulus packages? Well, we, we had brought the stimulus package in. And, you know, one of the things that we're uh, you know, finding interesting is the problem that we had six months ago may be different uh, than the problem we have today. It may be, the, be slightly different from the problem we have a few months from now. And so we had approved yeah. that. Uh, obviously, the money is available for small businesses that are struggling still. Uh, some are doing really well. Uh, and some are really yeah. struggling. And so not only is it supports for those who are really struggling, uh, yeah. but we've also got other supports in place. For example, uh, a lot of small businesses that didn't have digital presence, didn't have online presence, we've got now a uh, fund available to help them build that online presence, uh, even going to the level of providing boot camps so that they can learn how to have online presence, digital presence. So so we're but they're doing, but they're doing great now, though. I mean, we take a look at the job numbers now. I mean, they're they're adding jobs. Uh, you just said that the tech sector is doing is doing great. So why do we need to keep spending on this? Like, you know, I, I was listening to the premier the other day saying, "Well, don't worry, we're still going to give you a thousand dollars of family direct deposited in your bank account." At the same time, when ninety eight percent of the people who lost their jobs who got their jobs back. But why do we have to keep well, doing this? Like some people look at this and say, "Like, oh man, look at the deficits we're building up here. Do we have to keep spending this money?" Well, we've got, uh, I think, one of the most fiscally prudent uh, plans across the country. If you compare us to other jurisdictions and how much money is being spent, uh, we're very, I think, conservative in that category. But, Mike, I would say that some sectors are doing really well, and they're carrying us. Some sectors are really struggling. You know, you talk to small businesses throughout B.C., uh, a lot of the mom-and-pop shops, the small mom-and-shop restaurants, they're really, really struggling. And so, uh, you know, I think the numbers can uh, broad numbers can tell one story but there's a lot of stories in there that are not captured in the numbers and so we want to make sure that uh, you know that everyone is part of this recovery and not only businesses but people as well thanks for coming on today hey thanks for having me mike you bet thank you that is ravi kalan he is bc's minister for jobs and economic recovery talking about some of the job numbers just out this morning from Statistics Canada, British Columbia doing pretty well here in uh, bringing back a lot of those jobs that were lost in the early days of the pandemic. Let's talk about a major development here in the Meng Wanzhou case. Now, the U.S. Justice Department reportedly in talks with representatives of the Chinese tech executive uh, that would see her potentially return to China in exchange for an admission of criminal wrongdoing. That's according to a report in the Wall Street Journal. Among, of course, is the chief financial officer of Huawei. She was detained in Vancouver in December 2018, well, two years ago now, while changing planes at YVR. At the request of the Americans, she was arrested on a U.S. extradition request over allegations there, and she's been fighting extradition to the United States ever since. So this is a major development here in this case, which we follow closely on the show. Meng Wanzhou, could she return to China under a deal with the Americans here? But here's a here's a key question for Canadians. What about the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, who were detained in China 
in apparent retaliation for the detainment of Meng Wanzhou, do they get released too? All right, let's talk about this now with my guest, Charles Burton, Senior Fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Charles, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, what are your first thoughts on, on this news here, this big development here on this case? Well, I think that uh, it's a positive development for Canada in the sense that evidently the remnants of the Trump regime would like to um, get something out of the um, of their Justice Department's um, action against Meng Wanzhou, which would be uh, an admission of guilt. Um, and that would debase the credibility of her company, Huawei. I think they probably have some concern that um, President Biden might um, give in to a Canadian government request that the extradition matter be dropped altogether. So, um, you know, I think it's a good thing. I don't think that Ms. Meng will be going for it, though. Um, her father, the, the CEO of Huawei, um, Mr. Run, uh, has said clearly that Huawei is not prepared to acknowledge any culpability in the uh, alleged bank fraud against the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. So uh, we'll see how it goes. If she does leave Canada one way or another, whether she goes to the States, you know, to face those charges, or if we find that... Um, the extradition matters drop and she goes back to China, it does open up the way for us to negotiate with the Chinese regime to achieve the freedom of Mr. Kovrick and Mr. Saver, but that would probably require us making concessions in other areas, so you know, it's still a developing story, that's for sure. Okay, it's an amazing situation. What are your thoughts on the China's detention of, of the two Michaels? Is there any doubt in your mind, Charles, that that was clearly in, in retaliation for Canada detaining Meng Wanzhou? Well, I mean, we're going into the third year of their being in prison hell, and yeah. the Chinese regime has not provided any objective evidence uh, to suggest that Mr. Kovrick was a spymaster and that Mr. Uh, favor was uh, was working for him, gathering intelligence of some kind. It just, it you know, they 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 have no evidence that they that they present to us, and I'm pretty sure that means they don't have any. In any event, you know, looking at the um, at what we know about these two men, it seems basically impossible that they could have been engaged in any uh, intelligence operation. And we have the precedent of you know the case of um, Kevin Garrett, who was similarly held for close to 800 days um, uh, in retaliation for an American extradition request of a Chinese uh, spy, um, Su Bin, right. uh, who eventually uh, went to the United States voluntarily and, and went state's evidence. But in any event, um, once Mr. Su left um, Canada and was in the States, um, they decided to release Mr. Garrett, and any talk that they'd had of him being a spy just faded away, because clearly... Kevin Garrett was not engaged in right. intelligence operations. There's an outrageous situ outrageous situations all around. I'm sure the families of the two Michaels here greeting this news with some optimism and hope that maybe this leads to the the release of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Uh, I'm interested, Charles, in your thoughts though, when you say that you think that Meng Wanzhou would not go for this this deal where she would have to admit some sort of criminal wrongdoing in return for being allowed to go back to China. She's accused of, of, of uh, breaking U.S. sanctions against Iran. What makes you think she would not want to do a deal here? Well, it would mean that Huawei would have to admit that they were involved in, in criminal behavior. And, you know, Huawei is already having enough trouble convincing countries that it's a 
trustworthy um, company without uh, an agenda to engage in massive um, um, espionage or or use of of uh, their installations to put in kill switches over critical infrastructure and so on. So I think that uh, that would be part of it. It's you know Huawei's face question. And uh, aside from which, you know, the situation for Ms. Mung is not that bad. Apparently, she um, she finds it quite relaxing to be in Vancouver and able to pursue some of her hobbies uh, between um, going out for expensive meals and nice restaurants So, uh, and enjoying, you know, her $13 million mansion. And if she gets fed up with that one, she can always go to the, I think it's $4 million lesser mansion. So from her point of view, I don't think there's any compelling reason to leave. I think, though, that the Huawei company would be quite concerned, and the Chinese regime in general, that if she went to the United States and was facing potentially decades of incarceration, that she might go state's evidence and provide information about any relationship Huawei might have with Chinese security and military intelligence agencies. So I think that they, um, you know, they're playing a, a gambling game over this one and are probably hoping that that Mr. Biden will simply drop the whole thing and she can go back to China without having uh, admitted any, any wrongdoing. Okay, that's fascinating. We just have one minute left here, Charles. What is Canada's role in this situation if Meng and her lawyers are indeed in talks with the U.S. Justice Department over this? Uh, can Canada play, can come to the table and say, look, you know, no Michaels, no Meng, like you must release the two Michaels for this deal to happen? Do we have any kind of le- or any, any power in that regard? I don't think that we do. Um, you know, a deferred prosecution agreement would be between the government of the United States and Meng Wanzhou as an individual. So I don't think there's any possibility of putting any conditionality with regard to the consular cases of, of uh, Kovrigan's favor. But, um, you know, maybe um, something can be worked um, on the side to right. achieve that. But frankly, this seems to be more about the U.S. and China and Canada once again seems to be sitting on the margins, powerless. Okay, we're watching it very closely. Thanks for your expertise today. Good to speak with you. Okay, thanks a lot. That is Charles Burton from the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. He's one of our go-to guests here on the Meng Wanzhou file for sure. And this is uh, quite an amazing development here. Reports out of the U.S., the Wall Street Journal, that Meng Wanzhou and her lawyers in conversation with the U.S. State Department and some sort of a deal uh, for her to return to China in return for some sort of admission of guilt. Of course, the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, still detained in China for the last two years, and a lot of people hoping they will be released as well. All right, 2020 is going to go down as the year of COVID. Will 2021 be the year of the COVID vaccine when we immunize the world against this virus? There is so much excitement out there over the early trials of the two major vaccines that are being rolled out. Now, let's take a closer look at the planning Canada. Yesterday, we had a news conference in Ottawa with some details finally from the federal government on a COVID rollout plan for Canada. We do seem to be behind other countries, though, notably the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany. There are other countries just seem to be ahead of us in terms of getting this vaccine and distributing it to their people. Brand new Ipsos poll out today says Canadians are worried about a slow rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine in the year 2021. Let's talk about these issues now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Brian. Uh, how are you, Mike? It's um, a little bit disturbing as you, you look at what's going on in the world, including yesterday, Pfizer saying 
they may have to scale back production of the vaccine due to supply chain problems. Yes. Just as the Brits are starting to ramp up and the Americans are looking at uh, starting uh, vaccinations next week, if it's approved. That is troubling. Now, we did see, though, some details come out from the feds. Finally, they've been under Trudeau's been under a lot of pressure here to start explaining uh, how Canadians are going to get this vaccine. We got some details yesterday. It will be headed at the effort will be headed up by a, a Canadian military general, uh, Danny Fortin. And uh, here he is yesterday, Brian, for your thoughts, talking about the logistics of uh, getting vaccines out to Canadians. The ultra low temperature and minus 20 frozen vaccine candidates are coming first. Uh, commencing in January. From uh, For the early uh, release uh, COVID-19 vaccines, the, the track one vaccines, uh, ordering and demands from provinces and territories will be managed and coordinated through the uh, recently established National Operations Centre. Okay, Brian, you wrote a fascinating column for the Toronto Sun on the military plan for distribution of the vaccine in Canada. You got hold of a military planning document on how this is going to work. What did you find out? Well, despite what uh, Major General Danny Fortan is saying there, uh, the guy who he reports to in, inside the, the military ranks is um, uh, J- Jonathan Vance, General Jonathan right. Vance. He's the chief right. of the defense staff. He wrote an 11-page briefing outlining a lot of things that, you know, maybe most of us wouldn't think about, in, including what the spring thaw will be like and flooding in many communities and how that will impact vaccine delivery. But he also did say that we shouldn't expect the first doses to be delivered until the height of the pandemic at the time of the spring thaw. Now, where you live in Canada determines when the spring thaw is. But for none of us, is it in January or February? You know, mid-March to late March is normal. And if you're in more northern uh, or harsher climates, it's a bit later. But it is not happening uh, in the... uh, you know, the early months of the year. So we're going to be later. And it also said that it would be uh, the end of December 2021 before we were finished. Wow. Okay, so this could take the entire 2021 calendar uh, to get everyone vaccinated. How does that compare to other countries? How quickly are they going to get their people vaccinated? Well, the United States has promised a vaccine for everyone who wants one by uh, June. So that's a major major difference. Um, the uh, uh, Brazilians have posted their entire plan out on up on a, a website that the entire public can look at. And it, it, it goes into some detail. I don't believe it's that detail, but they're getting the vaccine before us. Many others are getting the vaccine before us. So the prime minister has been saying, don't look at the start date, look at the end date. Okay, well, now I'm looking at the end date and, and I'm not feeling good about it. And, and the end date is so late because we're starting so late. You know, I I can understand hiccups like Pfizer having problems getting all the supplies they need to make the vaccines that they want, and this is a new vaccine. But while other countries are telling their their citizens, you know, New York has said 170,000 vaccines before the end of the month. That's just for New York State. Uh, The Brits have had 800,000 flown from Belgium to Britain. We have nothing. And, and, you know, the prime minister can't give us a date, can't tell us anything other than the delivery window is within the first quarter of 2021, end yeah. quote. That's from the minister Anand. You know, they've tried to pass this off as saying, well, we don't have vaccine manufacturing capabilities. We do. We don't have them for the 
the first two, the Pfizer and the Moderna, because these are brand new styles of vaccine that have never been made before. Uh, But, you know, the Brits aren't getting them ahead of us because they're making it. It's a vaccine being flown from Belgium to the U.K., no, it is, it is fascinating to see where we are compared to other countries, and Canadians are worried about it. I think Trudeau is vulnerable on this. If we see a very, very slow or delayed rollout of the vaccine in 2021, I think it's potentially damaging to Trudeau. I mean, he must be worried about this Ipsos poll that just came out showing 74% of Canadians worried about the public distribution of the vaccine. It could be too slow to potentially stop the greater spread of the virus. Let me play this for you, Brian. There's another clip here of Major General Danny Fortin uh, speaking yesterday about the military plan to distribute the virus here he is talking about some of the special equipment that will be needed each track one covid19 vaccine candidates introduce the additional complexity of both the ultra low temperature and the frozen uh, cold chains the freezers both ultra low temperature and minus 20 freezers have been purchased are uh, we're are closely tracking delivery and installation timelines as well as uh, distributing them to the provinces as they arrive Okay. Okay. They've ordered the freezers. Uh, we, apparently, we don't have the freezers yet. We're waiting for delivery. How does this compare, Brian, to the military planning document that you got your hands on? Which is fascinating to me. It's, it it sounds like the military is already at least at least starting some rehearsals, right? Planning actual sort of war games as they get ready to distribute this vaccine. What did you find out in that? On that front, yeah, they did start some war games on uh, December second, led by Public Health Agency of Canada, uh, wow. and that's to be expected. And you know, I've been talking to retired General Rick Hillier, who's leading Ontario's uh, uh, vaccine distribution tax task force, and really, it will be the provinces that are the ultimate distributors of this vaccine. The military will get it to the provinces, and, and he's been talking about war games as well. My understanding is we've purchased a lot of these fridges, but we only have about 34 of them. That's good. That's good. And I want to credit the federal government for that. I can tell you that, you know, having spoken to provincial officials in a few different provinces, what they're doing is going around to their universities, their research facilities, their hospitals and saying, what do you have? They, provinces may end up purchasing their own freezers as well. Um, but that initial Pfizer vaccine, the one that has to be kept at minus 70, yeah. it will be uh, uh, d- it will be delivered by Pfizer. So we don't have to have the freezers until it comes off the planes. So at that point, is that's when we need the freezers. You know, the, and it won't be the military distributing those ones. Pfizer will fly it directly to where it needs to go because of the very uh, bizarre nature of it. There's no other vaccine we've used that needs this type of uh, treatment. Okay, Brian, last question for you real quick. What do you think this means politically for Justin Trudeau? I just wrote a column about this for Global News, and I just wonder if the back of his mind, Trudeau might be worried about a potential delay in distribution of the vaccine in 2021, if he's worried about taking political damage on that. And I wonder if it makes it more likely that he goes to an early spring election instead to get ahead of it. What do you think? Well, uh, doing that could be fraught with danger. Um, mm. You know, the uh, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, asked a very valid question in the House of Commons the other day. Do we have enough for our most vulnerable? The answer is we don't. You know, if everything goes to plan, then we'll have six million doses by the end of March. Right. That's enough to vaccinate three million people. Or right, because you need two shots. Population. Yeah, yeah, you need two shots. Right. So 8% of the population. The population over the age of 70 in Canada... Four is 12.5% of the population. Okay. 
So at that point, you've got to go up and probably just do people over 80 plus the healthcare workers. That's leaving a lot of seniors looking into April, May, June, another, you know, half year or more of lockdowns of living this bizarre life. That becomes difficult for the prime minister. You know, we just had the unemployment report today. The Americans are at 6.7 today. We're at 8.5. Yeah. Canadians will start noticing the differences. And after January 20th, a lot of Canadians look at uh, Donald Trump and just say, oh, but we're better than him. Well, on January 20th, Joe Biden takes over. Trudeau supporters won't be able to do that anymore. And they won't be able easily uh, able to dismiss whatever happens in the United States by just yelling orange man bat. Okay, tricky politics on this one for Trudeau, for sure. We continue to follow it super closely. Brian, thanks for coming on today. Thank you. All right, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. All right, at first, Vancouver Transit users uh, were seeing they were having trouble making payments online. All TransLink would say was it was suspicious network activity. Then we find out the truth. The TransLink had been hacked with a ransomware attack. Listen to this report from Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Not everyone was on a roll. TransLink commuters paying by debit or credit found themselves going nowhere fast. It's inconvenient. I have so many cards I can want to put, but I cannot put it. Or shelling out $3 for the ATM fee to buy a single-use ticket with cash, which was the only option. Plus the $150 my bank will, will charge me, so it's an extra $450. The IT system outage also affected employees. Sources inside TransLink say the phones, bus radio system, and email were all down. SkyTrain work orders were temporarily being done on Microsoft Notepad. We're told the computer that controls trains was not affected as it is on an internal server. We've seen a number of these kind of events in Canada uh, over the past uh, two months. Uh, Montreal's transit system had a very similar shutdown of services in certain ways like their website. The hacker there demanded nearly $3 million ransom but Montreal's transit agency refused to pay. Amid uncertainty about the scope of TransLink's apparent breach, technology expert Jesse Miller says it's probably a good idea for customers and employees to change their passwords. If you are using similar password information for the Compass card as you are for your financial, as you are for your social media, you want to take steps to to reset that. Okay, TransLink hit with that ransomware attack. They got the ransom note. It says your network has been attacked. Your computers are locked. Your private data was downloaded. And then it requests a ransom um, unless the data or the data will be published. Let's talk to an expert now. Thomas Patrick Keenan, the University of Calgary, author of the book Techno Creep. Hi, Thomas. It's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. Okay, you've seen a lot of these ransomware attacks over the years. What do you think TransLink should do here? Pay the ransom? No, they shouldn't pay the ransom. I mean, Montreal didn't pay it, and the trains are still running there. Uh, (laughs) What they should do is educate their employees. The most likely route, most of the time when this gets into a system, is because somebody did something bad. They clicked on an email attachment or downloaded something or believed that there was a Nigerian prince who wanted to give them $10 million. So... There definitely should be an employee education going on there. Typically, companies that are hit by ransomware have two problems. One is stuff stops working, as you've discovered, and the other is the bad guys may grab information. So that's still a worry. 
not so much for the public. Like your Visa card probably isn't in there. But if you're an employee of TransLink, well, maybe your payroll data is there, maybe a social insurance number. So that's a whole separate problem. Okay. Have we seen these? We see lots of these type of ransomware attacks. Is, are there any documented cases where companies actually did pay the ransom? Yep, yep. We have definitely heard of companies that paid the ransom. It's public knowledge that my own employer, the University of Calgary, paid $20,000 in ransom. Uh, They were attacked. Uh, It's had some good effects, I'll tell you, since the ransomware. And I I was neither the perpetrator nor the victim. I was, in fact, in Australia. And all I noticed is people weren't answering my emails anymore. And that's because their email was down here in Calgary. But the kind of good stuff that's happened is we've had a lot more education. So now, you know, if you get uh, trapped by a phishing test because we run these tests, then you get educated about it. We also got brand new printers because they found out that the printers were part of the problem. So ransomware can actually be an opportunity for some, someone like TransLink to, to really pull up their socks. Okay, we're watching it closely. Uh, Thomas, thanks a lot for coming on today. Okay, Mike, thank you. All right, Thomas Patrick Keenan from the University of Calgary, and we continue to follow that ransomware attack at TransLink. TransLink apparently uh, privately saying they will not pay this ransom, but we'll see where this goes and any if any public information is breached to the public. We're watching that one very closely. TransLink is certainly not the first large organization to be targeted successfully by hackers. This is becoming more and more common all around the world. What I do find troubling, though, is just tell me the truth. Tell me what is going on here. When we first found out about these problems on Wednesday, we got the early reports uh, that people were unable to use their credit cards at transit stations. That happened on Wednesday. TransLink responded by saying there was suspicious network activity impacting its IT systems. Yeah, no kidding. They would not call it a hack. It was a hack. We only found out after the news media got hold of the ransom demand from the hackers, which reads, your network has been attacked. Your computers and services our servers are locked. Your private data was downloaded. These ransom demands started rolling off of printers at TransLink. It then instructed TransLink to download a special browser and use a chat app option there on the browser in order to get more information on how to pay the ransom. This caused lots of problems here. You could not only not use your credit card at transit stations, but there were other problems going on as well, including bus drivers uh, not being able to use uh, some of their services aboard buses. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Michael Lee, uh, Liberal MLA. He's the official opposition critic for TransLink. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on, Mike. Okay, what are your concerns here with the situation? Well, as you say... You know, when we go through uh, using public transit every day, people need to know that their personal and payment information is safe. Yeah. And when this started happening, what started as a system error turned out to be uh, a cyber attack. And recognizing that uh, more jurisdictions are finding uh, these sort of ransomware attacks, we saw that with Life Labs paying out a $15 million ransom, Montreal Transit System having a similar situation where they paid out $3.7 million last uh, the end, where they're, they're looking at that situation. They haven't paid it out yet, but they... Yeah, they've, I, think, I, think the Montre- I think the Montreal Transit System, didn't they, re- they refused to pay, I believe. Yeah, they refused to pay that out. But, uh. you know, I, I think it just demonstrates the kind of nature of the concern as to, you know, we need to ensure that we're protecting our public transit 
transportation infrastructure because as people rely on data more and, and going more online, we need to make sure that all of that is being well protected and our privacy and our personal information is being kept safe. Right. Okay. What are you calling on now from the government for the government to do here? Well, you know, uh, the government's been silent. George Heyman has been missing in action here. He's the new minister responsible for TransLink. Uh, the public clearly needs to hear from Minister Heyman and the other two ministers uh, that were appointed for responsible for uh, parts of TransLink, which is overlapping in Metro Vancouver. Maybe they're trying to figure it out as to who's responsible here, but uh, clearly George Heyman is. And, uh, you know, he should come forward and reassure the public as to the fact that their public uh, uh, transit system is, is being run properly and is being kept safe in terms of their personal information. Right. I think most people, the, the biggest concern they would have is the protection of their own personal financial information. I mean, TransLink is probably have a lot of credit card data from people using credit cards to buy, to buy bus passes. Uh, what would you say about that? Do you want some assurances that that data is, is protected? Absolutely, Mike. You know, I think that with integrated systems, when people are using passwords on their their credit cards and, and their banking information and, and their public transit passes and compass cards, you know, we need to make sure that when something like this happens, that the public is informed right away because they need to yeah. know that they've been potentially compromised in the safety of their personal information, their payment information, and that... Uh, you know, what's been recommended, of course, that you change your password to make sure it's not the same because someone may have access to it at this point. So these are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, as we're, we're becoming more of a digital economy and, and, and using more things online, that we need to be protected. And that's what we rely on government to ensure that we are. Okay, it's a very kind of a mysterious and kind of murky situation right now. The company's payroll operations apparently affected by this tax. That's according to sources uh, speaking on background to Global News. Uh, payday, which is today for TransLink employees, apparently affected by this attack. But TransLink also indicating that they do not store any customers' fair payment data. So that would appear to indicate that personal financial information for TransLink passengers is, 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 I guess, not in danger or compromised. But would you like to see a, a clearer uh, statement to the public about exactly what kind of data has been, has been accessed here and whether the public should have any concerns? Mike, you know, this, this came out, uh, as you mentioned, from unofficial TransLink sources. It took a whistleblower yeah. to get this information out into the public realm. Uh, TransLink didn't come forward at the beginning on this, and they need to continue uh, to provide more information. And George Heyman, as the minister responsible for TransLink, needs to hold uh, that accountable and make sure that information is provided. The, the series of pieces of information that we're receiving uh, would indicate that there is some separation, but I question why uh, TransLink had to shut down all of the uh, payment systems in terms of how you can purchase uh, by credit card uh, or tap, uh, yeah. in terms of you're your going through the fare gate. Uh, these are situations where clearly the systems are integrated, uh, and the nature of the demand in terms of what's been uh, mentioned in the media, at least, is that certain information would be released in three days if TransLink right. does not meet the demands. Well, what is that information? Uh, so you know, I think that there are a lot of questions to be asked here in terms of what mechanisms uh, have been utilized here or measures to protect personal information. And I know and appreciate that there is an ongoing investigation, but 
uh, as TransLink sorts this out, they need to be more transparent and clear about the yeah. nature of the information that's been potentially compromised here. Right. Speaking to Liberal MLA Michael Lee, he's the official opposition critic for TransLink, talking about the TransLink ransomware attack by hackers. This appears to be a serious attack on TransLink's IT systems. You got uh, sources telling Global News, again, this is not officially coming from TransLink. This is sources uh, telling us that the TransLink phone lines were down. Uh, the radio system on buses was down for more than 24 hours. Drivers, bus drivers could not access an online portal for some employees. Some tasks were being done manually. So it looks like these hackers were successful to a great degree to disrupting a lot of the uh, the programs and systems there at TransLink. So I agree with you. I think some more public disclosure is, is warranted for sure. Now you've got these hackers, whoever they are, uh, demanding some sort of a ransom or payment before they disclose information. What do you think should be done about that? I mean, we don't want to pay these guys. We don't want to pay these these hackers, right? Well, you know, I think this is a this has been a challenge, right? That we need to continue to address. I know that the uh, uh, federal uh, defense ministry has been talking about the risk of greater cyber attacks, and we've seen situations right. where ransoms have been paid, as I mentioned off the top, in terms of Life Labs, for example, the $15 right. million dollars that was paid out. You know, this is a challenge. You know, we need to ensure that we are dealing with these situations in a better way, that we're protecting that information in the first place, and that we don't give in to uh, these sorts of uh, types of threats in a way that would be unsafe. And, and uh, you know, we need to continue to protect our, our infrastructure and our security of, of our transit system. Okay, thank you for coming on. We continue to follow this one closely. Appreciate your time. Thanks, for game for having me on, Mike. Okay, that's Michael Lee. He is the Liberal TransLink critic there uh, calling on George Heyman, the cabinet minister responsible for TransLink, to step up and address the system here at TransLink. It's been three days this has been going on. People still waiting for some answers about what has happened, the scale of this hack at TransLink and these demands for ransom by the hackers. We're keeping a close eye on that one for you. Lots of people uh, starting Christmas celebrations early this year. It's been such a gloomy year in 2021. Many people putting up Christmas decorations early. Our family is totally in on that. We've got our Christmas tree up. We've got decorations up in our home. And I think it's great. I think a lot of people are doing the same thing. But here we go now with one of the great Christmas time debates here and here's the question a real christmas tree or an artificial tree many canadians are concerned about the environment and their impact on climate change so what kind of tree is better for the planet chopping down a real christmas tree that you use one time and then it gets fed into a wood chipper or an artificial tree that you can use over and over again Interesting question. Let's talk about that now with my guest, Warren Maybe. He's the director of the Institute for Energy and Environmental Policy at Queen's University. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Warren. Good morning. Thanks a lot for coming on. So let's talk about this now. This is an interesting debate and a question here. A real tree or an artificial tree? Let's talk about the environmental impact of both. So let's start with a, a real tree. What would you say is the environmental impact of a real Christmas tree? Well, there's a lot of different ways to look at that question, actually. Uh, a lot of people would default to the greenhouse gas emissions. You know, if you yeah. were to go out, cut down a tree and, and haul it home and, and use it for the season, then somehow get rid of it. 
what kind of a greenhouse gas footprint would it have? And the answer is, uh, it's not that big. It's about three uh, kilograms of CO2 equivalent, which is a relatively small footprint. Um, if you are disposing of it in a city like Vancouver that has a good composting kind of recycling program, uh, that footprint stays very low. There are some places where it might go to landfill. Landfill's worse. If you're landfilling those trees, the footprint uh, goes up to about 15 or 16 kilograms of CO2, uh, which, which of course, is not as good. Right. But it doesn't take into account all the environmental benefits of growing the tree, and, and a lot of people like to remember, you know, as the tree grows, it provides habitat, uh, it provides mm. shade, uh, they're nice to look at. You know, there's a lot of benefits uh, to the living tree for sure. Right. Okay. So when the tree is growing and it's alive, um, it's it of course soaks up a lot of carbon dioxide. Yeah. Right. Right. And then when you when you chop it down and you use it, and I guess depending on how how you get rid of it, if if it's composted as you said, or if it gets put in a landfill where it can potentially generate methane, which is a real bad greenhouse gas. Uh, you release all that carbon effectively, I guess, that's been locked up in the tree. Is that the way it works? Yeah. yeah. It, we count that three kilograms, which is about what the, the tree is going to weigh, you know, give or take. Uh, <clears throat> that's that's going to be the footprint that goes with the tree. Methane production, methane's a much worse greenhouse gas. So that's why that right. turns out to be so much worse uh, if you do landfill. Right. You mentioned an article that uh, three and a half kilograms of carbon dioxide locked in a tree is you know if that's released would be about the same uh, same impact as driving a car 14 by uh, 14 kilometers is that about right yeah and okay. we're talking about a a, a gasoline powered car here not right, an electric right. car <laughs> <laughs> yeah. electric cars would be a lot better <laughs> okay so obviously there's an environmental impact from a real Christmas tree. Now, some people might think, well, maybe that's why it's better to have an artificial tree, especially because you can use it over and over again every year, right? So what about, sure. the, what about the environmental impact of, a, of an artificial tree? Well, that one is a little bit trickier. So <clears throat> artificial trees are, are typically made of some kinds of plastics with maybe some metal uh, thrown in for the structure, maybe a little bit of wood, depending on the vintage of your artificial tree. Um, we have worked hard to come up with an average number and the average number that we came up with is about 40 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. That's wow. the footprint of producing all that plastic, uh, all that metal, the material that goes in. We have to remember that a lot of those trees are being produced in places like China or Korea. Uh, so they're coming overseas. Now shipping things has a relatively low footprint compared to hauling it by truck, but still all of this added up is, is a fair bit, 40 kilograms versus the three or so uh, that go along with the real tree. Right. Our, our artificial trees, you mentioned that they're largely made of, of plastic. That would be a, a like a like basically a fossil fuel source, right? Most of them, yeah. I have been hearing this year that there are a few bioplastic, so oh. uh, renewable plastic source trees, coming onto the market. Now, I haven't really looked into those yet, but they would have a different footprint uh, because, of course, the, the carbon is, is from a biological source. It's a little bit more recyclable. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, you're looking at something that has a fairly high footprint. But of course, the right. corollary is that most people don't buy an artificial tree and throw it away after one year. Yeah. So <laughs> if you use it long enough and 
you know, the, the magic number seems to be between 10 and 12 years. Uh, then the footprint lines up with what uh, a real tree looks like. If you use it longer, and uh, I have family members that are still reusing the same artificial tree from many years ago, <laughs> they actually could have a better environmental footprint. So it's all about how long you're willing to commit to that particular tree style. Right. You mentioned that typically an artificial tree would be made, let's say, in China very commonly, and then shipped to North America, I guess typically in a container ship, right? That's um, right. Yeah, so that would obviously generate greenhouse gases too, right? Yeah, and we do incorporate that. I mean, because the ship is so big and moving so much, the amount that gets attached to a single artificial tree is is still relatively small. It's worse, actually, if you're shipping things by truck across the country. So. Okay. You can imagine somebody living in downtown Vancouver who picks out an artificial tree. Uh, that tree might have just come off a ship, you know, a few blocks away. Uh, it might not have a huge trucking footprint associated with it. Whereas somebody who lives uh, where I live in Kingston, Ontario, uh, it's likely to have a much bigger footprint from that portion of the shipping. Right. Now, you mentioned if you have a real tree, uh, it, it might have a variable environmental impact depending on how the tree is disposed whether it's put into a landfill site or it, it's it's chipped up in in some other in a, some other fashion for yeah. an art for an artificial tree um let's say when it it meets the end of its life and you're not using that artificial tree anymore and you want to get rid of it can you recycle an artificial tree typically well i mean we have problems with plastics recycling in general there have been a number of reports lately on that very topic. The government is introducing a zero plastic waste strategy, yes. uh, you know, that presumably over the next decade will move us in the right direction. Right now, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a place that would take an artificial tree for plastics recycling. Some of the metal that's in some of the older trees might be recycled. There used to be a lot of those aluminum trees. I don't know if you remember, like the Charlie sure. Brown Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> I think those ones are actually, they're valuable for recycling because aluminum is relatively easy to recycle. But the plastics, it's tougher. Um, and uh, right now, I don't think that the options really exist in too many places to do that. Okay, so the bottom line for the age-old question about which one is better or worse for the environment would you say, therefore say a real tree would be more benign on the planet? I, I hate to do this, but it's an <laughs> it depends answer. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're, you're in Vancouver, and I've right. lived in Vancouver. Uh, there are lots of people who really don't have the option to do a real tree. They live in a, a condo. Maybe right. their strata tells them that they can't have a real tree. Maybe it's just too much of a hassle getting it up and down uh, from the lobby, you know, it's it's a lot of work. Uh, not everybody has a house with a backyard and, you know, the ability to put these things up. I think that if you're in a place where you can do a real tree and where you're in a place where they're doing good uh, composting of, of the trees when they're done, uh, I'd by all means encourage that because the trees when they're growing do lots of good things for the environment uh, and the Christmas tree growers are fairly responsible uh, group of people. They're doing a good job managing the landscape. 
But for those people that have to have an artificial tree for, you know, the reasons I've said or for allergies or other reasons, uh, don't feel guilty about it. Just try to plan so that you don't dispose of it quickly. (laughs) Try to use it for a long time. Right. Okay. Fascinating. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thank you for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. Warren Maybe from Queen's University there on real tree versus fake Christmas tree. Which is better for the environment? And like a real scientist there, kind of, well, he says, well, it kind of depends.